Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode number two of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. And I'm Steve Loddick. And Bobby, we still don't have music. Oh my God, we don't have music. We don't have music. Now, S- Steve, sing something for us. We talked about maybe an acapella opening to get mm. the, the mood started, but um, we really just didn't think that our listeners yeah. would stick around for all of that. We'd, li- we'd like to keep our listeners. We would like to keep all three of you. Well, who um, are we anyways? Who are we? Uh, we're professors at the University of Texas who specialize in national security law, and we love to discuss and debate the latest developments in our field, although lately that's becoming a very exhausting proposition. <sighs> Yes, indeed. Uh, we disagree a lot, especially because, you know, here it is. We're recording this around 4 o'clock in the afternoon Central Time on, what is it, Tuesday, January 31st. Um, but we thought it would be useful to, you know, maybe learn from our disagreements. We, we do learn from each other. We, we often disagree, but very often we find our disagreements are much narrower than we expected. And we think there's some virtue in sort of sharing some of that discussion with you guys. So, Steve, what is on tap for today? What are we going to talk about? Well, first, we're going to mock ourselves for not having any music. Okay, check. Uh, then we're not going to talk about Steve Bannon being on the National Security Council. Res ipsa locator. I was going to say because this is a PG-rated podcast. Both of the above. Um, then we're going to talk a bit about President Trump's executive order on immigration, um, which obviously has been a big deal in the news the last week. Um, then we're going to talk about, Bobby, the, the latest strikes in Yemen and what yep. we're supposed to be learning from that. Okay, that sounds good. And maybe if there's time at the end, we'll throw in something a little more whimsical, too. Keep um, the mood light. Whimsy is, whimsy is, is, you're good at whimsy, I'm not. Uh, we'll see about that. But Bobby, where can people find our podcast? That's a good question, because you know, we, we launched the first episode last <laughs> week. Uh, to, to, to absolutely no claim or attention because of the way we did it. Yeah, and there's no way to find it either. But we, we started with a Twitter account. You can follow us. Please follow us on Twitter individually, and we'll give you those uh, handles in a second. But the podcast has a handle. It's at NSL Podcast. At NSL Podcast. Now, to follow us individually, I'm at Bobby Chesney. And I'm at Steve underscore Vladek, but, you know, just follow the podcast. Even better, though, we now, at least as of a few minutes ago, have a bare-bones uh, web presence, www.nationalsecuritylawpodcast.com. That's really deep. That is deep. Uh, we're, we're really conveying a lot of messages there. If we ever change the name, we're screwed. Indeed. Well, we've put in for iTunes to carry the feed. We don't have that yet. I'm told that takes a few days. We'll get there eventually. Um, so but in we, the interim, hi mom. Yes, and uh, you know our students who hopefully sign up and listen to this. Oh yeah, this is a this is a good test. Hey, national security law students, if you're hearing this, tell us that you heard this. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> crickets, crickets in our next class. So Bobby, why don't you kick us off with the uh, with the immigration order, uh, the executive order, of immigration? All right. So we have the executive order thirteen seven sixty nine. Uh, it's doing a lot of different things, Steve, and maybe the. The smartest thing we can do, and this is a little bit of listener feedback from last time, we sit here with documents in front of us and we've been pouring over them. Listeners who are, you know, if you're Bill Banks on your elliptical machine or you're uh, someone else driving down the road, you're going to perhaps not have the document at hand. We should give a, uh, an accessible uh, verbal description here. So why don't we just identify some of the key moving parts that are in the order? Because it's doing a number of different things. Uh, I'll throw one thing out there. It's... It's, uh, it's the identification of, of seven countries, and let's see if I can name them. Iraq, Iran, Syria, the Sudan, uh, Libya, Somalia, and I knew I'd forget one. Who am I leaving out? How did you forget Yemen? Yemen! Because it's, it's going to come up later in our discussion. Ah. All right, so uh, in, in each of those cases, uh, entry has been suspended. 
Uh, Steve, can you give me the details on how that exactly is supposed to work? Is it is it a temporary suspension, a, a permanent suspension? What's the mechanism? So right? the executive order makes it temporary for now, in theory, to allow the government to review the policies and the broader um, manner in which we are screening uh, immigrants and non-immigrants who are lawfully traveling to the United States from these seven countries. Um, in theory, it's a total suspension for, I think it's 120 days in the executive order. Um, but the real question, I think, Bobby, is what's going to happen after that right? and whether this becomes more permanent. So, right. So one possibility is this suspension gets entrenched or extended, kicked down the road. Another possibility, and I believe the order uh, contemplates this, whether other countries ought to be added to the list. Now, we've heard some talk uh, from White House representatives about the uh, derivation of this list, right? There's been some talk about, well, we didn't, we didn't make this up. This is just the Obama list. Explain that. So the theory is that you know President Obama actually identified these seven countries as countries that we were going to remove Bobby from something called the Visa Waiver Program. Um, and so back before this all got started, back really before the rise of the Islamic State, it was possible, even if you were a national of one of these countries, if you also held a passport from, let's say, the United Kingdom, um, you'd be eligible for the Visa Waiver Program, which of course is supposed to expedite the process for immigration, for travel between the two countries. Back in, uh, t starting in 2011, but progressively through 2015, President Obama ramped up um, the constraints on the visa waiver program and eventually excluded nationals of these seven countries from visa waiver eligibility. Okay, so let me see if I got this. So you have a, big, a background rule of, as a default matter, if you're from a foreign country, you need a, a, a visa to get in the United States. But at some point, we decided for certain countries, especially, uh, but not limited to our European uh, allies, uh, you could have a waiver. And so people could, the same way that if, if you and I show up at Heathrow tomorrow, we walk in by flashing our, our passport. That's right. We will not have, we don't have to have, have we do not have to have applied in person right. at a British consulate here in the United States for special travel permission. And so that all remains in place. But um, then some, at some point in recent years, there was a realization that, well, there's something tricky there. If you have a, say, dual national British Iraqi person, maybe since you don't want visa waiver to extend to Iraq, maybe you want to go ahead and carve those people out. And the Obama administration, after the attacks in Paris, I believe, That's right. uh, decided to identify these seven countries as um, their nationals or dual nationals um, subject to visa requirements. After. Normal, right? The normal um, visa rules that, right. were, that would otherwise Not be that applicable. Not they were banned just that they'd have to go through the ordinary screening process. And, and frankly, Bobby, I mean, this is where I think is completely disingenuous about what we're hearing from the White House on the executive order. There is, I think, a rather significant difference between suggesting that nationals of these seven countries get our normal, non-super friendly country visa screening process versus, no, we are going to categorically prevent you, no matter your immigration status, no matter your connection to the United States, from even traveling to the United States for this short you know, interim period, but perhaps indefinitely. I hear, I hear you on that. I, I agree that it, insofar as someone claims that this Rubicon had already been crossed, that's, that's not right, that this is very different in kind. I think it is responsive to the questions that I myself originally had as to why these seven, why in the world isn't, say, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, why aren't other countries that, you know, it, that the order, you know, references 9-11 attacks, but none of the people involved in 9-11 attacks hail from any of well, the not, I mean, listen, not just the 9-11 attacks, right? right? None of the perpetrators of any of the terrorist attacks on U.S. soil on or since 9-11 right. um, are nationals or were nationals of right. one of these seven countries. Right, so the telling part here is, so why these seven? They're, they're, I'm sure it's overdetermined many reasons, but one, one might ask the same question. Why were those seven singled out uh, back then? And it, I've heard suggestions, and this seems 
certainly plausible to me that it may be that these are particular countries where we have less faith in the screening going on and the cooperation going on at the other end with the other country. Now, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a more cynical view, Bobby, right, which is that, you know, if you look at who's not on the list, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, yeah. right, other countries of that ilk. Yeah, um, influence and in, in diplomatic weight and economic weight, no question, that's got to be part of the story. Too. Right, and part of why those countries were never on the list in the first place. I guess my bottom line is I think it's, a, it's somewhat of a red herring to focus on why these seven, much more interesting – is this good policy? And actually, Steve, is it even legal? <laughs> well, um, obviously, the former uh, Associate Attorney General Sally Yates did not think so, since she refused to enforce the order and learned very quickly what it means to serve at the pleasure of the president. Indeed. I'm sure that came as no surprise. I'm sure she understood oh, of well course. that was the next step. Of course. Um, but I mean, I will say, I think that, you know, to understand the legal challenges to the order, separate from the policy piece. Yep. Yeah, let's just talk about the law now. Right. On the legal challenges, I think it's really helpful to break out the different classes of immigrants and other non-citizens who are affected by the order. Okay. Because I think if you place those along a spectrum, the order gets more and more unconstitutional as you get more and more status. So let's start with the, the lawful permanent residents, mm-hmm. green card holders. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that there's actually no, no question that as applied to green card holders, the order is unconstitutional at the very least as a violation of due process. Insofar as it is preventing green card holders from leaving the country, it's preventing green card holders who are out of the country the day the order was signed from returning to the country, Um, and it's otherwise, and it's doing all of this without any kind of hearing, any kind of individualized determination that these particular non-citizens pose a threat. So I think there's actually both a procedural and a substantive due process objection on that score. Yeah, I, you know, I know we're supposed to look for points of disagreement. So we, can mo- <laughs> so we can model civil disagreement, but I, I can't disagree with that. And, I, and my understanding is that DHS didn't disagree with that. DHS wanted them excluded as well and got overridden by that guy from the National Security Council. Yeah, Steve uh, Bannon. Right, that guy. Um, who we're not talking about. Right, right, move on. So, but Bobby, I think where things get more interesting, and perhaps where you and I might actually disagree a bit, is, you know, LPRs are the easy case. It's part of why the Department of Homeland Security didn't want to include them right. LPRs, in the LPRs, lawful permanent residents. Exactly. Um, we'll, we're, we're, we'll give you the quiz at the end. <laughs> yes. um, but imagine someone who's actually a refugee who's never set foot on U.S. soil. Right. So there might be some statutory arguments that, for, for example, maybe um, it's unlawful under this 1965 statute to discriminate on the basis of national origin um, when, when uh, considering this kind of visa eligibility. Yeah, so let's, let's turn our attention to those who either don't have or at least arguably don't have good constitutional claims mm-hmm. um, and turn to the statutory obstacles. So well, I think even those folks still have one constitutional claim, which I want to come back to. Yeah, we'll come back to that at the end, and it'll, ha- it'll have something to do with the... the the religion of these individuals, Indeed. if I'm not mistaken. So you've got um, a statute uh, known as 212F, mm-hmm. which on its face seems to delegate, you know, Congress has sweeping powers over immigration and entry into the country. And it seems that in the statute 212F, they delegated basically carte blanche to the president to decide to exclude people. But there's a, another statute. What is this other statute? So there's a 1965 statute that in theory prevents the president from discriminating on the basis of national origin um, as a categorical matter in making visa eligibility determinations, right? Basically saying no one from, I don't know, Hungary, for example, um, is going to be allowed to apply for a visa this year. Um, And of course, when you have a conflict between a later statute and earlier one, the later one's supposed to control. Now, I think there's some play in the joints on the 1965 statute. It's not clear that it applies to every context in which the executive order applies, and that might have to be litigated. But it's worth stressing that some of the challenges to the executive order are going to be on statutory grounds, that it exceeds the authority Congress has given to the president, and not just the constitutional arguments we've already been alluding to. 
Now, speaking of those constitutional arguments, let's get out on the table the, this other type of argument because there's a different part of the a different part of the system or the, the, the executive order creates a structure in which if you are a member of a religious minority in one of these seven countries in one of these seven countries now which let's translate that a bit what is the majority religion in each of these seven countries so of course these are all Muslim majority countries okay so if we're talking about any religious minority um, there's a lot of reason to believe that from their own statements from administration officials and advisors like Rudy, Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani. Uh, that the particular idea here was to carve out an exception for Christian refugees mm-hmm. um, in any event to not carve out an exception based on religion for Muslim mm-hmm. uh, uh, would be entering the country so that obviously presents a potential establishment clause question if you've got a lawful permanent resident, then clearly that's looming large. Explain the argument as to why n- persons who do not otherwise have claims to individual rights under our Constitution, because they are not U.S. persons, not lawfully present in the country, where does the Establishment Clause still potentially enter into the picture? So let me get to that in one second. Let me just say, obviously, you're going to have to show that the ban is motivated by an intent to discriminate on the basis of religion. Yes. Um, right. Obviously, the Trump administration is defending the, the executive order as being about national origin. I think a court is going to have a real hard time accepting that at face value given the exception for religious minorities, um, and given the public statements, not just by Rudy Giuliani, but by President Trump himself, who has tweeted about the minority exception being specifically for Christians. And just to be clear on this, is this sort of a situation we should think about judicial review as potentially severing the different parts of the order, where the, the, the suspension as to entry for the seven states could be upheld, it's this remedial or this waiver provision that might be singled out as being religiously motivated. Or are these things so intertwined that you can't sever them? It may be that they're not severable. I mean, you know, courts don't necessarily apply the same severability analysis to executive orders that they apply to statutes. This is actually a situation where I've never seen the severability question come up with an EO that's been litigated, and I wonder if it's not a question ultimately of what did that judge have for breakfast? Yeah, it may, it may well be. But I think the key, Bobby, is that you know I don't think a court's going to have an especially hard time seeing the executive order as being motivated by an intent to discriminate on the basis of religion. This raises the question you asked. So how could a non-citizen outside the United States who has no substantial connections there too, nevertheless invoke the Establishment Clause. And here, I don't mean to get too deep into the weeds, but there is a long-running school of Establishment Clause thought and indeed jurisprudence, uh, perhaps the principal uh, proponent of which today is Justice Clarence Thomas, that the Establishment Clause is not like the rest of the First Amendment. It's not an individual right, quite to the same way that it is a constraint upon government. Um, Basically saying, government, you can't establish religion period, regardless of how it's affecting an individual potential plaintiff. This is a type of argument we've seen in another context that's bound to come up in some future edition of the podcast. Right. I mean, obviously, this is the same argument that was behind the Guantanamo habeas litigation, that the suspension clause of the Constitution, which enshrines the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, except when in cases of public safety, uh, except when in cases of invasion or rebellion, the public safety requires suspension, that that's also structural. Um, If Justice Thomas is right, then I think there's a pretty strong argument that you don't need to have substantial connections to the United States yeah. to claim an Establishment Clause violation by an executive order that quite clearly, Bobby, is preferencing Christianity right over Islam. So one, one thing that I just keep thinking about is, so what is the, the, the ICE, uh, the Customs and Border people that have to 
discern who gets it and who doesn't. Like, what are they going to be doing exactly? Are they going to be admin? You know, I, I'm saying this as someone who teaches Sunday school. I've, I've got a confirmation class to teach this weekend. I wonder if I should consult and help them come up with questions. Um, or a shibboleth, if you will. Perhaps. Um, this, is, this, this, present, this is exactly the sort of thing that, uh, from an establishment clause justification point of view, having the government coming up with tests to see who's, who's in good faith claiming to be a Christian refugee. But I mean, I think, I think the key point that, that I hope everyone takes away from this is, you know, yes, it is certainly true that in the field of immigration, the government has incredibly broad power, perhaps broader regulatory power than it has in any other context. Um, and that's for good reason, right? We want the government to be able to control the borders. We want the government to be able to have immigration priorities. The problem with this executive order, Bobby, is that it's, it's so inartfully done um, and so obviously not about the problem it purports to solve, that I think courts are really you know, not going to struggle that hard to invalidate it and send it back to the drawing board. It, it is certainly worth emphasizing here that um, the problem the United States has, has been facing with uh, the potential in the, in the actual terrorist attacks within the United States in recent years is, is based on homegrown terrorism. Sure. These yeah. are people within the United States. There's um, a couple of convictions this week, including a jury conviction in South Florida today, a guy in Key West who, he was he was an emigre uh, from Cuba, 2004. Not on the list. Harlan Suarez uh, has been convicted by jury, I think just today, um, of trying of being involved in a plan to try to set off a nail bomb mm-hmm. on a Key West beach. Mm-hmm. Um, this is entirely typical of the profile, either U.S. citizens, People who've been in the United States, there's there's a big problem. Peter Bergen has a whole wonderful book about this, The United States of Jihad. The problem we face is not in the first instance a problem of people sneaking in from abroad uh, as, as Islamic State agents, though that that's certainly a risk that we're facing. Yeah, but, but for. not even in the first instance, Bobby. I mean, right, there's just no evidence of that, right? I mean, I think, you know, all of the attacks we've seen in the last few years, at least on U.S. soil, um, zero of the attackers have been refugees. Right, no, right? this is all extrapolation from fears, looking at what's going on in Europe, thinking, well, that could happen here. But but it, the, the reason I emphasize the homegrown terrorism problem is that I think that actually there's a real policy harm in terms of what is it that, def- that helps us smoke out and detect people within the United States who may be radicalizing. Sometimes it's because, very often, it's because they're on social media touting their love for all things Islamic State. Um, and the FBI is able to intervene as a result of that. Sometimes it's because people in the relevant communities tip off the FBI. I firmly believe that it's a core part of our, our defense against uh, these sorts of threats, that people be willing to speak to the government. And I think that a, a measure like this that, that causes angst and, and tension with those communities is, is something that can be really problematic. Now, let's let's uh, pivot away from that and, and quickly talk now about... Uh, Unless, Steve, do you have anything else you want to cover on that? No, I mean, the last thing I was just going to say was, I think, with regard to the courts, right? I mean, we already had uh, five district courts ruling over the weekend on the airport cases. Right. Right? Folks should stay tuned, because I don't actually, I don't think the airport cases are going to be where the rubber hits the road. No. It's going to be these broader lawsuits, one filed by the state of Washington, right? Surely one coming from the ACLU. We could actually have a lot more to say about this as the litigation progresses. Is it fair to say that if, if for all the problems and, and anxieties and, and indeed the, the harm suffered by people who were stuck in detention in airports, that was sort of the, the moment of this rolling out in such an unplanned and, and ineffective way 
but that's not the main thing we need to focus on with the order going forward. The, the question is the, the policy that's now in place that's keeping people off the planes to begin with. And, and indeed, I mean, Sean Spicer has used the number 109 a bunch of times to refer to the number of people actually affected by the order. Um, that is a preposterously gross understatement. 109 folks have been detained we're supposed to believe, right. um, at airports. Right. That's without regard to the tens of thousands. Well, the people who can't get back in now. Or who can't leave. Yeah, exactly. And, and so I think right, the key the key for everyone to understand is the airports were the, the friction point. Yeah, right. But actually what's really, what the what the ban, what the executive order is really about yeah. is the folks who are stuck overseas and can't come here and the folks who are here and now can't leave. Yeah, that's that does seem to be quite right. Okay, so uh, let's talk about something under the heading of... Uh, Next steps in the asserted armed conflict with the Islamic State and with Al-Qaeda and associated forces. Uh, we had a lot of news over, over the past couple of days and really kind of picking up steam today, actually, about a special operations ground forces raid, uh, guys dropping out of helicopters and conducting a raid on an Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, or AQAP, compound in Yemen. Um, and this was this got a lot of attention when it was first touted or first reported because it was pointed out that this was the first ground raid uh, by the Trump authorized by the Trump administration that we know of at least. Uh, this is not the first use of force in Yemen in the first two weeks of Trump. There were uh, airstrikes against AQAP targets previously. A lot of interesting details slowly dripping out. Um, Here's what I think some of the important ones are. First of all, it's been reported in some circles that this was actually a joint U.S.-UAE, uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, special operations raid. UAE forces, uh, as I understand it, have been instrumental on the ground in Yemen, uh, in particular evicting AQAP from a, a port that they had a presence in fairly recently, uh, driving them out into, into areas less crowded with bystanders, which is very important. Seems, seems clear we're working by, with, and through uh, our Gulf allies there. Um, there was talk about this raid having been planned quite a, quite a long time ago. This is, a, this is planning that goes well back into the Obama administration, but the uh, stars hadn't aligned in terms of either the actionable intelligence or maybe, we'll see, policy green light to go ahead and carry out the raid. Now, Donald Trump did issue that green light. The raid occurred. Um, an Osprey did go down, and so we lost an aircraft there. One uh, operator uh, was killed in the raid. They came under pretty heavy fire, Steve. Um, at one point, we're told, uh, they, they started taking fire from the rooftop of a nearby building and called in an airstrike on that, uh, on that position. And some are saying that might be where some of the, the civilian casualties uh, were experienced at that point. Most notably among the civilian casualties and what's catching a lot of media attention today Apparently, uh, reportedly, the eight-year-old daughter of Anwar al-Awlaki, uh, herself a citizen of the United States, uh, died as collateral damage, as they say, in that operation. Um, the report is that the, the main objective of the operation was to yield a bunch of, uh, of intelligence to do sensitive site exploitation. And they're saying, of course, that they got lots of good information about this. It does look and sound and feel different. It sounds like the sort of thing people were wondering would start looking differently. Uh, but it's not the case that there had never been ground operations in Yemen before. Um, it's very rare. There have been a few instances. So, so Bobby, if I'm looking at this operation um, and trying to divine some broader lesson about what we can expect from the Trump administration with regard to these kinds of operations versus their predecessors, which one do you think it cuts? I mean, is it just too yeah. early to tell? So I, I, 
So clearly it's too early to take firm positions. We don't know. It's entirely possible that the same, whatever the set of circumstances were that resulted in the green light may have yielded the exact same result under Obama. We don't know. Uh, but if it does pretend some, if something did change here, then chances are good that what has changed is a greater tolerance in this administration for running risks by way of a ground operation. You know, you don't have to read David Sanger's book, Confront and Conceal, to know that the Obama administration was at considerable pains to uh, rely whenever possible on uh, ways of using force or using, uh, using government power, cybersecurity, drone strikes, things that didn't put uh, U.S. lives immediately at risk. Right. Uh, and so here, when you when you authorize a ground forces raid, you're, you're taking that risk. You're also taking uh, perhaps more chances in, of collateral damage because as the fighting unfolds, something like this that I described a moment ago could happen. Uh, that said, it wasn't like they didn't have ground raids uh, fairly often in various locations. It's just been a while in Yemen. Is, is there anything novel here about the role of the UAE? Uh, well, I certainly hadn't, I hadn't seen public reporting about this before, so I thought that was very interesting. There's nothing novel, though, about having our special operations forces working by, with, and through allied forces. Sure. In fact, we're very accustomed to hearing this as the model in Iraq and, in, and to some extent in Syria. Um, we don't hear as much, but something like it goes on in all the major theaters. This is, this is what happens in Somalia, Libya, and Yemen. Uh, we just haven't had a lot of boots on the ground in, in Yemen compared to these other places. Uh, from a legal perspective, I mean, I think some things, it's important to underscore, at least I think it's important to underscore, the, the complete continuity with, with how things have been under Obama. And therefore, these are things to me that you don't want to be, you don't want to be too quick to, to lay at Trump's doorstep. So first of all, the claim that there's an armed conflict, that's consistent all the way back to the Bush administration. The Obama administration never walked back the armed conflict claim. Uh, the organizational scope of that armed conflict, including AQAP, definitely no difference there between Trump and Obama. Um, or there's no apparent difference. No, no, no difference Visible at all. from this operation. No difference at all as to whether AQAP sure. is an associated force that's within the scope of the armed conflict with al-Qaeda. Um, using, the, here, here's where it gets interesting. Was there a difference on the idea of tolerating the risk of collateral damage. Mm -hmm. so, so famously in the Obama administration, except when they wanted to turn it off, as they sometimes did in Libya, there was the, the policy guidance, the PPG, that set really strict standards of essentially no tolerance for expected collateral damage. If you, if you expected it, then, then don't take the action. Um, in areas considered to be not zones of active combat operations. So the idea was, we'll use force there periodically, but it's not at the whatever level counts as active combat operations or active hostilities. Um, my understanding is that Yemen was such an area. Sure. So uh, it's possible that this raid was consistent with the PPG, uh, which has not publicly been repealed yet. Uh, it's also possible that this was a raid that would not have made it through PPG muster and that President Trump determined that, and not surprisingly at all, that he doesn't care, it's an armed conflict, go ahead and use forces uh, on the ground, even if there is that risk of collateral damage and risk to them. So it could be risk tolerance has changed. And, and I'm surprised in that regard that we haven't actually seen more media coverage uh, of the fact that Alaki's daughter was one of the casualties of the strike. Because it seems like had this happened a year or two, three years ago, a U.S. citizen killed in a drone strike would have been front page news. Maybe it's just that there's just so much front page news right now. Well, and, and therein lies, I think, some of the, the White House strategy, frankly, of how these first you know, two weeks are unfolding. 
Lots and lots and lots of news, a high pace of operations. I mean, it's, it's a high operational tempo, as you, as you might say, in the, in the military context. Or, or as Ninth Circuit Judge Stephen Reinhardt would say, they can't overrule me all the time. <laughs> uh, you know, it was in Napoleon who said that uh, quantity has a quality all its own, or Indeed. words to that effect. So, so Bobby, what, do, I mean, what, what are you looking for, I guess? And if we're, if we're sitting here trying to figure out just how the footprint of U.S. military force changes or not in the Trump presidency, what should our listeners be looking for when the next reports come out about the next operation? Uh, we we want to get insight into whether the presidential policy guidance, the PPG, uh, has has been retracted in whole or in part, and whether we're going to see more tolerance for collateral damage and more embrace of the model we're using in Iraq and Syria uh, more openly and perhaps with a a greater willingness to use ground forces. Now, let me let me point out here, there, there's a practical limit here. There are only so many special mission units to be spread around a lot of hot zones. Um, they can only be scaled up so much. Now, there's, there's a lot of talk in the Trump administration about expanding uh, our military. That doesn't happen overnight, right? You, you've got it right now, they've got to use the forces they've got. So I think there's a practical limit on how much expansion you're going to get. We want to look for uh, possible deployments and uses of force in places that heretofore have not been part of the list. And let's, let's recap the list. Obviously, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, the Fatah region of Pakistan, at least periodically, which, by the way, got, has been really quiet in the final months of the Obama administration, waiting for that to come back. That's bound to come back soon. Uh, Libya, we've not been quiet there at all. We've had a high operational tempo in Libya. That probably will continue. Uh, Somalia doesn't get covered quite as well. You don't hear as much about it, but there's, there's periodic strikes there. And then there's Yemen. Will we see other parts in Africa, other places in Africa? Will we see some U.S. strikes? Mali, for example, Nigeria. So, yeah, there, there's, there's a lot to, to wait and see. And when that happens, there will be a temptation to say, well, look what Trump's doing. This is different. Well, you know, why is, why is that different from, from various expansions that took place under Obama? We'll have to analyze those on a case-by-case basis. And, and, and let me be the one to say, just because Obama did it is not always going to work as a legal argument. No, it doesn't make it legal. What it, what it should do and what I want people to do, if, if you're hearing me on this, is to, is to not look at those issues first and foremost through the lens of, oh, Lord, what is Trump doing now? Look at, look at it on the facts, consider the law. And then tune into the podcast to hear what we have to say about it. <laughs> now, uh, Steve, uh, just to turn away from these more grim topics and wrap up with on a, on a happier note, a little bit of a palate cleanser for our audience. How about Super Bowl predictions? Oh, that's a good one. Okay, uh, I, I can't go against the Patriots as much as it pains me. I don't I don't think it's the Falcons here. What about you? So I'm going to go out on a limb just because my wife is a, a true blue Patriots fan, um, and therefore I have to be a contrarian. You know, I think the Falcons are a, a young, feisty team. I think they've got a lot of speed. Speed, a lot of offensive weapons. I'm going to say the Falcons are going to pull one out 35-31. That is my my prediction. You heard it here first. It'll be on the internet. It's 4.36 Central Time on Tuesday, January 31st. Patriots 31, Falcons 17. And how about Supreme Court Justice? We're going to find out in a couple hours who President yes. Trump is nominating. You know, the, the president is a showman. He loves surprises. It's, it's all misdirection with the two candidates that have been inexplicably, you know, hauled out to D.C. And I think it's completely explicable if you view the world as an episode of The Apprentice. Well, it's got us talking about it. And I think in a great surprise, he, he crosses the aisle for Steve Vladek. <laughs> and on that note... Um, I better go get on a plane. And we're signing off. This is the National Security Law Podcast, Episode 2. I'm Steve Vladek. I'm Bobby Chesney. Thanks Adios. for listening, and stay safe out there. <laughs>